Good morning, everybody. If you would, open your Bibles up to John chapter 6. Today, we will be finishing this chapter, John chapter 6. So we finished this uh, bread of life discourse. So for you whole 30 years or keto dieters, um, breathe easy. We will be moving on from this bread talk, right? Um, that was a joke. Bad joke. All right. So it could be a long morning. Um, all right. Yeah. So today we're going to really see an interesting progression take place in this gospel. So uh, a serious turning point in Jesus's ministry. We're going to see a narrowing of Jesus's followers, a narrowing of the crowd. So where earlier in this gospel or in this chapter, you see likely 25,000 people following Jesus that crowd is beginning to narrow down to 12. And of those 12, we're going to see that one of those is going to be Judas, who is going to betray Jesus later on. So we're seeing this crowd begin to narrow um, farther and farther down. Um, And so throughout our study this morning, we're going to really see two points. The first point is this, as we study this, we're going to see that God is sovereign even when it appears that opposition to Jesus prevails. So when the grumbling crowd leaves, when the masses abandon him, God's plan of redemption still prevails. And as we'll see later on in this Gospel of John, God sovereignly uses the plan of this grumbling crowd to crucify Jesus as the means to which he will redeem uh, sinful humanity. So ironically, the very people who walk away from Jesus in John 6 and declare his message worthless will be some of the very people who solidify and validate his message as true by nailing him on the cross. So we're going to see that God is sovereign even when it appears that opposition to Jesus prevails. And then also, secondly, we're going to see that it's possible to be in close proximity to Jesus and yet not believe Jesus. And it's here that I think we're going to find most of our application today. It's not just the crowds those who are interested in Jesus that walk away in unbelief. And rather, it's going to be those who follow him, who walk with him, disciples of his who walk away in unbelief. And so in the same way that the title disciple during this time didn't mean uh, men and women would be immune from unbelief, in the same way today, being in the church, quote-unquote, having the title as a Christian doesn't mean that you believe. And so we're going to unpack that more as we journey through this. But these are going to be two points that we're going to really see resurface throughout this study. One, God is sovereign even when it appears that opposition to Jesus prevails. Two, uh, it's possible to be in close proximity to Jesus and yet not believe Jesus. Now, a little context, reminding ourselves what we learned. Just really quick Cliff Notes version of what we've studied up in this point. If you remember, Jesus, in the beginning of this chapter, uses the feeding of the 5,000 as a foreshadow to what he was going to accomplish on the cross. So going back even farther than John chapter 6, verse 1, all the way back to the Exodus narrative, we remember Israel wandering through the wilderness, having no food. God miraculously provides manna for them every single day in the wilderness. Um, God, being merciful and faithful, cares for them, provides for them, gives them bread to uh, physically sustain them while wandering in the wilderness. Well, now we see that that bread came down, that came down from heaven that God miraculously provided 
was a foreshadow pointing to Jesus. So in the same way that God sent bread down from heaven to grant physical life for his people in Exodus, God miraculously sent down his son Jesus, the bread of life, to provide eternal life for his people. So Jesus has been telling the crowd that's following him that he is the bread that came down from heaven. This miracle that he performed in the beginning of this chapter is a talking point, a turning point, a pointing to, a foreshadow to this message that Jesus is the true bread of life, the one that eternal life is found on. And expounding on this truth, in last week's passage, we saw Jesus say that in order for one to have eternal life, he or she must eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's a very strange thing to say. Right? It doesn't matter. It was as strange as that is for somebody to say in today's age, it was just as strange then, right? So context, this would have been very eyebrow raising for these people. So Levitical law would prohibit the drinking of blood. And it would prohibit even the eating of meat with blood. So yesterday we were having the discussion of how we like our steaks, right? Some of us like our steaks very juicy, very full of blood, right? Um, just a little cooked cow that's still alive. I, I don't know how Andrew eloquently put that, but um, he really likes his steak bloody. Not Levitically permissible. So this would have been eye, eyebrow opening, right? Eat his flesh, drink his blood. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? It would have initially brought confusion, but by the end of last week, we saw clearly that Jesus was speaking to the fact that he was going to give his life up on the cross so that those who believe in him might have eternal life. So to eat of his flesh, to drink of his blood, is to believe in and trust in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And we see that believing in and trusting in this atoning work benefits us both now and later. Yes, I was going to make a now and later joke, but we're going to skip that. So in verse 53, Jesus said to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Right? So you remain lifeless if you do not believe. So if that is true, then the opposite must be true. If you don't eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, then you will not have life in you. Um, but if you do eat of his flesh and you do drink of his blood, if you do believe in him and you do trust in this work of Jesus on the cross, then you will have life in you, present tense. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell within you. You will have gone from death to life. You were dead in your sins, but God being rich in mercy has made us alive with the Messiah. You will have life in you, present tense. And so last week we shared in our community groups our testimonies, right? So I think hopefully this was a, a very beneficial time, a helpful time for you guys, a fruitful um, a practice of getting to know one another better within your groups um, and to be encouraged by what God has done within you. Um, but I think there's a consistent theme amongst some of us um, that may be a little discouraging at times, and that's this. Um, and so I, I don't, I want to kind of nip that discouragement in the bud. So by the grace and mercy of God, some of us were saved at a young age, right? So I was saved at the age of seven at vacation Bible school. Well, with that, there's a temptation to think that your testimony 
isn't a big deal. So your testimony would never make it on Facebook for I am second, right? You remember those videos? Um, So we're not, well, I was 55 years old and I was addicted to meth and God appeared to me in a dream and I went to here and God did this, this, and this. Like we don't have that type of testimony and so we feel like our story isn't valid. Like it's not credible. It's not very, uh, not a very big deal. So listen to me. Some of us may have been saved at the age of seven. Some of us may have been saved at the age of 57. And it doesn't matter where you fall on that spectrum, whether you were saved at the age of seven at vacation Bible school or 57 in prison, your conversion was miraculous. You were dead in your sins, an enemy of God at the age of seven years old, and you were dead in your sins 57, before Christ, but God, being rich in mercy, at the point of that conversion, brought you to life. So you now have life in you, and that is miraculous. So do not fall victim to the lie, or believe the lie, that your testimony is not valid. Like, this is a true act of God that's worthy of celebrating and rejoicing in. So Um, I hope that you find encouragement in this. Like, don't shy away from sharing your testimony because it's an act of God. It's uh, your conversion was miraculous. You were dead, but now by God's grace and mercy, you are now made alive. As verse 53 tells us, unless you believe and trust in Jesus, you remain lifeless. You have no life in you. And so belief in Jesus presents you with life now you have the holy spirit you you who will comfort you the holy spirit will comfort you he will convict you he will lead you to bear fruit that you could not bear beforehand and so feeding on jesus uh, in belief leads to intimacy with jesus now so verse 56 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him So there's great benefit that comes from or comes to those who believe in Jesus. And so don't miss this great reward that comes from abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in you. There's this relationship that you have with him that you did not have before. It's a miraculous gift from God. If your faith resides in Christ, you do not have to walk through life alone. You have the Lord there with you. You abide in him. He abides in you you. But not only does eating the flesh, drinking of his blood, present you with present tense benefits now, but it presents you with future benefits later, right? So um, an eternal reward, a future hope. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So belief in Jesus presents us with the promise of eternal life. So it presents us with a future hope of resurrection, something far greater than anything that we could experience in this life. So Ray Ortland, in his book on the gospel, says this, The bright gospel has the power to sustain us through hardships. And so what he means by that is that if your hope is found in Jesus, if your faith is found in Jesus, you're trusting in the gospel, then there is great hope for you in the face of heartache and in the face of pain. Jesus will make all things new. 
He will restore all things back to the way that they once were. All of your tears, all of your mourning, all of your pain will pass away and be no more. God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Right later uh, gives this analogy comparing the Christian to a homeless man or homeless woman who's living under a bridge, eating from a dumpster, who then has a limousine pull up to uh, your spot. And that out of that limousine comes an attorney, and he hands you an envelope. And that envelope says that you have a long-lost uncle who just passed away who has a fortune for you. And in two days, you will get a billion-dollar check, right? At that point, your um, cardboard box doesn't seem so hopeless anymore. Eating from the trash can doesn't seem so hopeless at that point because you know that in a couple days— you will then have this fortune, right? So there's the gospel is that fortune, is that hope. As we struggle through life here, we know that this isn't it. We know that there's something far greater for us that we long for and that we cling to that hope as we journey through this life now. A vast fortune is coming. So the bright gospel has the power to sustain us through hardships. We will one day worship Jesus for all eternity in perfect peace, in perfect harmony. Belief in Jesus both presents us with um, uh, both now and later, both present tense and future tense benefits. And Christ alone is life. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on Jesus will live forever. So with that in mind, Let's jump into our passage today, verses 60 through 71. It says this, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right, so going back to the top, looking at verse 60, uh, it says this, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I think the first question that we have to obviously ask is, Who is the disciples that John's talking about here? Right? So the first question is, Who is John referring to here when he says the disciples? Well, as you begin to survey this, um, this passage, I think we'll quickly notice that there is this distinction between who he's talking about here in this verse and his 12 disciples that he'll talk about later. So in verse 66, for example, if you want to look down there, we see that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
And then following this, we see in verse 67, Jesus turned to the 12 disciples and asked if they're going to leave with them. So we have to understand that verse 60, this verse that we're looking at, is referring to a separate group of people than his 12 disciples. But these are men and women who are walking with Jesus, following Jesus. Um, Where Jesus goes, they go. When Jesus speaks, they hear that message spoken. When Jesus performs a miracle, they see that, mes- that miracle performed. They have begun to identify themselves as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus. So although a distinct group, these are nonetheless men, women who are following, uh, not just following, but walking with him, as we see in verse 66. Well, when these disciples heard this teaching from Jesus, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? So this refers to everything that Jesus has said up until this point with his conversation with the crowd. So Jesus has claimed to be the bread of life that has come down from heaven, right? He says in verse uh, 53, unless you eat of this flesh, the son of man, the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. We just looked at that. Jesus has previously referred to himself as the son of man. So let's zoom in on that title really quick. Um, The title of son of man would have jogged his listener's memory back to Daniel chapter 7. So this would would have been a prophetic term. In Daniel 7, we see the son of man being described as an eternal ruler who is going to come and establish an eternal kingdom that could not be destroyed or passed away. So all peoples, all nations, all languages are going to come and serve this eternal ruler, the Son of Man. So this is someone who's going to establish an eternal kingdom. The Son of Man will reign forever. So you can't imagine why this would have been a difficult thing for these disciples to understand. Because Jesus is saying that this eternal ruler, the one that all nations, tribe, tongue, are going to worship and praise... Jesus is saying that he is going to give his flesh up uh, and offer this blood so that everyone may have life. So this completely shatters everything that these disciples would have ever understood about the Messiah. I I thought about uh, Black Panther, right? When uh, Michael B. Jordan, that iconic scene, is this your king? Right? They're probably thinking that. That's where he probably got this. Like, Is this your king, the son of man, the eternal ruler, is going to lay his life down? Uh, He's going to spill his blood? Like, what kind of king does that? So everything's being shattered. How can an eternal king, how can he be an eternal king if he lays his life down and sheds his blood? And then how can I have eternal life through just belief in the son of man? Jesus is turning everything that they've ever understood upside down, and he's just demolished any grounds of boasting that they may have in their flesh, in their works. Hard here, this is a hard saying, doesn't mean that it's difficult to comprehend, doesn't mean it's difficult for them to understand. It means it's a harsh, offensive, and intolerable statement. It's difficult for them to accept. And so the disciples didn't ask for more clarification here. His words were clear enough that they had begun to grumble over the implications of the words that Jesus had spoken. And their grumbling doesn't go unrecognized. 
Look at verses 61 through 62. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So the first thing I want us to notice here is the supernatural knowledge of Jesus that's being shown to us yet again by John. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he says to them. So this kind of paints the picture that the disciples are grumbling, complaining in a way that they didn't want Jesus to hear. But Jesus, knowing in himself, calls them on it, right? And so I think this tells us that no right or wrong action, thought, or word ever, never goes unnoticed by the all-seeing, all-knowing God. No right or wrong action, thought, or word goes unnoticed by the all-seeing, all-knowing Son of God. So Jesus sees all, he hears all, he knows all, and he knew in himself that his disciples, disciples, disciples were grumbling against the words he's spoken. And he calls them on it in verse 62. Look at verse 62. He says to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So in other words, you don't like the idea that I'm the bread of life that has come down from heaven. You don't like the idea that the Son of Man's going to lay his life down. Um, well, what are you going to do if I ascend back to where I came from? What are you going to do with that? The ascension of Jesus is a foundational piece to Christianity that I think oftentimes we forget about, right? So we, we talk a lot about the death of Jesus. We talk a lot about the resurrection, but we don't talk a lot about the ascension, right? So Luke 24 and Acts 1 tells us that after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see Jesus then appear to his disciples. And while he appears to his disciples, has this conversation with them, um, blesses them, he then ascends. He rises. He returns back to where he came from. Look at verse, uh, Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, for example. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So Jesus came down from heaven through the conception, through being birthed through Mary, the virgin birth. He grew in wisdom and stature. He lived the sinless life that we could not live. He died the death that we should have died on the cross. He rose from the grave. And then he appeared to his disciples and then ascended, returned back to heaven. And so Jesus here in John 6 has been prophetically speaking to his death on the cross, meaning he knew beforehand that he was going to go to the cross and lay his life down. John 6 tells us that, that 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 was God's plan from the beginning. Before the foundations of the world, this was God's plan. God's plan. No, I'm not going to sing that. Um, But now we also see that Jesus knew that the death and the grave could not hold him. So he also knew that that he was going to rise, that he was going to return back to heaven. He knew that when his work was finished, he would return back to where he came from. He was going to return to heaven. And that's where he is now, right? So he's seated at the right hand of God. So this provides us with so much hope as Christians that we don't just worship and serve and give our life to someone who's dead in a grave somewhere. 
right? If that was the case, then we would be completely and totally wasting our time. We would be a bunch of idiots. But the resurrection is true, and he has ascended, and so this provides us with great hope. The ascension of Jesus, just like his death, tells us that the message Jesus is preaching here is trustworthy and reliable. Before it ever happened, Jesus says, hey, the Son of Man is going to give his life up so that the world may have life. And now he's saying, asking this question, well, what if I ascend? He's knowing. He's speaking to the ascension before it ever happened. It tells us that what he's saying here, his message here, is trustworthy and reliable. Jesus knew his purpose in coming. He knew the cross was in his future. But most importantly, he knew that the cross was not going to be the end of the story. So Jesus says to his disciples, you're struggling with the reality that I'm going, that the bread of life is coming down um, from heaven. Well, what are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And then Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So in other words, in order for one to come to life, the Holy Spirit must act. And back in John 3, verse 34, through, I believe, uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we saw that God gave the Spirit to Jesus without measure. Um, and so therefore, the words that Jesus has spoken to them, the very message they're grumbling over, is a message full of Spirit and life. It's a message that leads to life. If you want eternal life, then come to Jesus. Believe in him. Trust in him. Give your life to him. Belief in the words Jesus has spoken here leads to life. You cannot say you believe in Jesus and reject the Bible. Belief in Jesus and a rejection of his message is incompatible. It doesn't work. True belief in Jesus cannot be separated from his words. However, as we see in verse 64, there are some of you, Jesus saying to this this crowd of disciples, those who are walking with him, there are some of you disciples who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. First thing I want us to see here is uh, the fact that Jesus uh, knew those who are following him and who those were that didn't believe. He knew that beforehand. There's, they're associating themselves. Um, there are some who are associating themselves with Jesus but yet do not trust in Jesus, do not believe in Jesus, which tells us today that it's possible to associate yourself with Jesus, to associate yourself with the church. Consider yourselves a disciple of Jesus and not truly trust in him, not truly believe in him. Close proximity with Jesus does not mean belief. It's not that this crowd didn't understand Jesus. It's not is that they chose not to believe and trust in Jesus. And so it's possible to go to church every Sunday, identifying yourselves as a Christian, and not truly trust in Jesus. That's a terrifying thought. And I think it's something that we have to constantly wrestle through, right? Living in the Bible Belt of America, there's many cultural reasons for us to go to church. So rather than go to church because you want to worship and learn more about the God who has redeemed us in Christ, rather than go to church because you want to fellowship and encourage and pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you may go to church every Sunday because it makes you look like a better person. 
right? It, it kind of builds you up as this guy who is very religious, who's a good person, or gal who's very religious and a good person. You may go to church every Sunday because you feel like attendance or involvement in church grants you favor with God, that this is something you have to do in order for God to love you, um, which is not the case. Or you may be here because you're trying to win the approval of a girl or a guy who comes here, um, or because your spouse drags you here. You may come here because your parents make you. There's uh, an abundance of reasons that aren't good reasons for why we may come to church every day and be in close proximity to Jesus. And the reality is you could fool people, right? You can put on this show. You can serve. You can fill out that volunteer form that a lot of you have filled out, but not everybody has, but we'll um, give that plug. Kayla, my wife, um, <clears throat> I haven't even filled it out, so... Um, I'll do that soon. It takes you less than a minute. Uh, it's like five questions, not even. So you, you may be very involved, right? You can fool those around you that you are this good Christian, that you believe, that you are a believer, but you cannot fool God, right? So may we take heed to that warning. You can fool man, but you cannot fool God. He knows your heart. He knows why you're here. He knows why you do what you do. Um, and so... Um, as we see here, men and women are walking with Jesus, holding the title of disciple, yet holding on to the title of disbelief. They're in close proximity physically, but they're light years apart from Jesus spiritually. But with that being said, I want us to also take note of um, the fact that this does not catch Jesus by surprise. So God is sovereign even when it appears that opposition to Jesus prevails. When everyone's up in arms over Jesus' message, Jesus doesn't begin to scramble and, and kind of try to patch up his message in a way to keep the crowd. He knows that the crowd is grumbling. He knows that they're leaving. He knows the disciples are grumbling. But yet God's plan to redeem sinners through the death of his son could not and cannot be thwarted. And so he will always sit on the throne, and he's never caught off guard by the hard-heartedness of mankind. So we see in verse 64, the message that Jesus was proclaiming was a message full of life, yet many of his disciples did not believe these words. They clung to death. And from the beginning, Jesus knew who those were that did not believe. Now, there's a differences of opinions of what this title from the beginning means. Some commentators think that this is a reference to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So from the beginning of Jesus's ministry, um, there were the so on and so forth. Others, however, think that this is similar language to John chapter 1. So in the beginning was the word and the word was God and um, so before the foundations of the world, Jesus was there. Some think that this is a reference back to that. So from the beginning, Jesus knew who those were. The beginning, beginning, right? The beginning of all things, he knew who those were that did not believe. I don't think either point's false. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4 tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Um, so I think the opposite could be as true as well, right? So in the beginning, before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew who would not believe and who would betray. Like, this doesn't catch him off guard. Nothing catches him off guard. 
So Jesus says in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Um, this kind of is where a lot of us squirm. Like, how do you reconcile this God's sovereignty, man's responsibility? We fleshed that out the past two weeks. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back, listen to that. Um, but we, we've wrestled through this, the reality that coming to Jesus is a gift from God. Our natural disposition as mankind is to run away, to reject, to cling to our sin because we have a sinful nature. And therefore, we desperately need the Holy Spirit for life. We desperately need the drawing of God in order to have life. Yet, in the same breath, we have a responsibility to respond to this message. But in verse 66, we see that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So as Bruce, one commentator, puts it, what they wanted, Jesus would not give, and what Jesus offered, they would not receive. So those who walked with Jesus turned back and no longer walked with him. What a heartbreaking verse, right? This this should break our hearts seeing this, that they walked with him, that they saw his miracles, they Um, celebrated the works that he had done. They ate the bread that he multiplied. They watched men, women who were sick become healed. They heard this message that Jesus is proclaiming, yet they no longer walked with him. They turned. This message is too hard. We're out. And I think, unfortunately, the longer you're in the church, the more you're going to see this come true in today's day and age. None of this has changed. You will see men and women who appear to be devout followers of Jesus turn and no longer walk with him. Saying things like, I thought this following Jesus was something other than what it was. It was um, too difficult. These trials that I encountered were too hard. God can't be good. Um, His message is too offensive. Whatever the reason may be, they once appeared to be following Jesus, to be believers, and they are now no longer following after him. My prayer this week is that that will not be true of anyone in this room, that we um, will be not those who turn and follow in the footsteps of these disciples. My prayer is that we will follow in the footsteps of Peter as we see what he proclaims in the following verses. Look at verses 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go, as, go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So where the crowd just abandoned Jesus, declaring his message worthless, where the disciples did so, where they left, Peter first responds by calling Jesus Lord. Let's camp out there for just a moment. This word Lord is sometimes used in a similar way that we would use the word sir, right? My son's on a huge kick that he calls everybody sir. Sir mom, sir dad, sir Billy, sir Wayne, whatever it may be. Like that's his, I guess, way of paying respect to anyone. Given the context of Peter's response, we can safely conclude that Peter isn't just being respectable to Jesus here. He's not just using an honorary term that anyone may use loosely for anyone um, in a, a, a higher position. 
Rather, I think similar to what we see in Psalm 27, Peter's declaring Jesus as God, Lord over all. Psalm 27 starts by saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Right? So in the midst of what's transpiring before Peter's eyes, Peter's declaration is truly remarkable. He's calling Jesus Lord here, saying that Jesus is his only hope for salvation, the one in whom he trusts. He's saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can I go? What else could offer me the hope and the protection that you could? And so a true disciple knows that there's no safer refuge than being with Jesus. The crowd, uh, they have left for hopelessness. They've left for despair. But we're sticking with you, God. We're sticking with you, Jesus. Where else will we go? We believe your words are true. Therefore, we know that nothing else can satisfy and nothing else can provide eternal life. My prayer is that this will be our declaration, right? Where else will we go? In the midst of trials, in the midst of heartache, when everything is beginning to spiral out of control around us, and we're beginning to doubt God's goodness, we're beginning to doubt his faithfulness, my prayer is that we'll still cling to this declaration. Where else would we go? What else could offer us the hope and peace that we find in Jesus? To whom shall we go? Abandoning the one who provides hope in the midst of hopelessness will accomplish nothing. What or who could possibly offer us more hope, joy, and peace than the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer of all things, Jesus? He's given you life. He offers us life when we had lifelessness, meaning he gives you the Holy Spirit. You abide in him. He abides in you. There's no greater hope than being found in Christ Jesus. So I think a helpful discussion for us this week in community groups would be for us to flesh that out more. This idea of where else could we go, right? Where else? What are other options? If we're on the fringe here and we're like, man, I think I'm out on this whole Christianity thing. I'm out on this whole Jesus thing. Where would we go? If you decided to walk away from Jesus, where would you go? And how does every other alternative to Jesus pale in comparison to Jesus? So my hope is everybody right now is in a good place in terms of this. Like, your faith in Jesus is strong. And you're like, no, like, I know that any other option would be foolish. Um, I think at some point in our life, all of us will encounter doubt in some form or fashion, we'll begin to question the reliability of Jesus' claims. So I think a helpful practice that I think I'm going to try to do this week is going back to this passage and writing out promises that Jesus has made and writing out to a future you why abandoning Jesus would be foolish, right? Like, why is Jesus worth it? Where else would you go? If you left Jesus because things just got bad and you're out on religion all to begin with, like, I'm just going to go and live my life for myself doing whatever I want, then what, at some point you're going to encounter trials, what, what's going to offer you hope in those moments? What do you cling to? If you abandon the church, then who walks through these trials with you? 
Who carries your burdens with you? If you abandon Christianity for another religion, every other religion's based on your work. So why would you abandon the free gift of salvation that's extended to you in Christ Jesus? Why would you abandon that freedom for chains of work-based religion? Why would you pick that back up? Why would you think that salvation depending on you would be worth it? So any other option than Jesus would be foolish. And so it, hopefully all of us are in a, a stable place. So reflecting on that in community groups and your personal studies, what, why would, um, if you decided to leave Jesus, where would you go? And how would every other alternative to Jesus pale in comparison to Jesus? Helpful discussion. Um, do with it as you will, community group leaders. So continuing on, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So we see here that belief is knowing, clinging, and trusting in Jesus. Peter heard the words of Jesus and probably struggled with it in the same way that the disciples did. But rather than reject and walk away, he believed and trusted that Jesus is the Holy One of God, meaning there's no one else like Jesus. He is the only hope for salvation. What a remarkable declaration. Now, I thought about this this morning of the progression of Peter's story, right? So here, this is a pinnacle moment for Peter, an incredible declaration. But if you finish the Gospel of John then you'll know that Peter de- denied Jesus three times, right? So that's, that's not the pinnacle. That's the valley moment for Peter. Well, Peter. Um, <laughs> uh, so that tells us that belief in Jesus does not exclude you from sin. Um, you're still going to blow it. You're still going to fall short. And so believing in Jesus does not mean that you no longer need him. So the the work of Jesus on the cross covers our sin, past, present, and future. We will always need Jesus, the Holy One of God, who gives eternal life. And that's why the gospel is good news. So may we cling to that truth. Last couple verses. Jesus answers them, the twelve disciples, did not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Notice the progression that we've seen in John chapter 6. You have the crowd that was following Jesus, coming after him. They've now left and rejected Jesus. They do not believe. Then his disciples, those who were walking with Jesus, not just following, but now walking with him, they've rejected, they no longer believe, they're out. And now we see Jesus saying to the 12 chosen disciples that one of them will betray him. One of those will not believe. One of those will reject him. And so again, this tells us that one, you can be in close proximity to to Jesus and yet still reject and not believe in Jesus. Judas saw all the miracles. He ate of the bread and the fish that Jesus multiplied. He went and gathered the, the crumbs and filled up these baskets full. He, he saw firsthand. He heard firsthand the messages. He watched all of these miracles being performed. Yet he chose not to believe. You can be in close proximity to Jesus and yet still reject and not believe Jesus. And then secondly, God is sovereign. 
even when it appears that opposition to Jesus prevails. The betrayal of Jesus did not catch him off guard. So it wasn't a moment on Passover, a year from this point, when Judas betrays him, that Jesus is like, what in the world am I going to do now? No, beforehand, a year beforehand, Jesus knows one of these is going to betray me. The betrayal of Jesus did not catch him off guard. He knew exactly who was going to betray him long before it took place. God sovereignly uses the plans to betray Jesus as the means to which he redeems sinful humanity. Satan's greatest blow wasn't a blow against God. It was a blow against himself. It, he, it fell under the sovereign hand of God. So church, may we find great comfort in this truth. So when opposition comes in our life, when despair comes, when hopelessness comes, that's not outside of God's hand. In the same way, we have hope as we suffer, as we go through trials. God is sovereign even when it appears that opposition to Jesus prevails. May we cling to that truth. That should offer us great hope.